for it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Welcome back to Short Hops and Tall Tales, a picture list podcast highlighting the romantic elements of baseball that make America's pastime special. Uh, I'm Noah Scott, once again joined by my co-host Brandon Riddle, here to talk some weird baseball. Uh, this week, we're joined by Zach Hayes. So Zach is a baseball writer here at Pitcher List, where he's done going deep articles, written about the White Sox, and is one of the hosts of the Shaggin' Flies podcast with Ben Palmer. So one of my first times meeting with Zach was for the best things about baseball draft prior to the start of this season, uh, where he expressed his love for fans catching foul balls while simultaneously balancing their children in one hand and their beers in another. Yes, yes. So that, that was my initial reaction. I was like, I got to talk to this guy and get him on the podcast. Uh, so, Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and and I got to ask, Zach, have you been one of the uh, people in the crowd that has caught a ball and everyone cheers when you do that or boos if you drop no, it? No, I've taken a couple. I took a home run ball off the hands once. I got a foul ball on like a pop-up down the third baseline. Uh, I was sitting in the lower deck like four or five rows back uh, just past the dirt on third base. Uh so it like bounced on the warning track and straight into my hands and it was really cool. So like I got it, but it was like, it was entirely unimpressive. So there was, I mean, it was, if I hadn't like caught it, it would have hit me right in the face and I would have looked stupid. So, uh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. A win's a win though. I, I mean, I'd take that, take that any day. Yeah. So, so Zach, so you're from Chicago, right? That is correct. Cool. And so like you're, so I, what I'm, I guess, leading to here is, you know, we just really like to talk about some of the players that really helped us fall in love with the game. And as a White Sox guy, uh, just who's your favorite White Sox player of all time? Of all time. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to talk about Burley, obviously. Um, my first favorite player was Frank Thomas, just the big hurt. He's larger than life. He's actually he's on my TV as we speak right now on the uh, the White Sox pregame <laughs> show, still, still, still oh. in our hearts. Um, I never, you know, I was someone who always kind of had a rotating cast of favorite players growing up. It just who whoever was really good in the moment. I went through a big Jose Contreras phase. Uh, Alexei Ramirez was my guy. I guess uh, the Sox always had a lot of Cubans who were always really exciting. Uh, Diane Viciedo, I thought was going to be great, uh, but. I think <laughs> I think Burley is definitely my my favorite of all time. He's just uh there's there's nobody like him. Just a solid player, yeah. Yeah, I I love Burley. I think my other go-to pick would probably be Paul Canerco cuz he was really big when I was when I was, you know, getting into watching baseball. What about you, Brandon? Does a <laughs> does a Ken Griffey Jr. count? <laughs> <laughs> no, but not. <laughs> Right. That, that those. How long was he on the White it, it Sox for? Was like two months. He was uh, two months. Yeah, something quick like that. Yeah, he was a he. He was trade deadline two thousand eight. The last time they won the division, he did. He threw out the potential tying run at home plate in the hey. one game playoff for the AL Central title that year. So he did leave his mark on White Sox history. Good, good. Uh, and you know what? It is kind of odd to think that Griffey was still playing in two thousand eight. He doesn't seem like a two thousand eight player. But uh, there we go. <laughs> Uh, but no, but really, I, I'd also go with Frank Thomas. He's the first one that popped in my mind when I saw that question. Um, yeah, so definitely the big hurt. I mean, you also have to think because the White Sox also had Manny, right? For oh, for 
a couple a, a, a short while there. Um, they've had had quite a Jimmy Rollins too. I think late. Oh wow, late in his career. Yeah, we like many um, less than stellar teams of the past twenty years. We've made a name. The Sox have made a name for themselves for as a home of like late career washed up stars. We were talking with um, Janice Scurrio on on Shagging Flies last week about uh, Roberto Alomar, who was acquired by the, the White Sox at the yeah. deadline twice in a row uh, in 2003 and 2004. But yeah, Griffey, uh, Manny was even shorter. Manny was a month, uh, like a August 31st waiver trade or something oh, after he had gotten suspended. We had uh, Kevin Euclid the last year of his career. Really? Uh, Orlando Hudson, and these aren't even stars, but these are. Oh, yeah. dog! Hey, <laughs> oh, dog was a classic. I wish he was. I wish he wasn't washed up by the time by the time he got here. But yeah, uh, yeah, no, those names. It's a familiar sentiment you're talking about. Yeah, it's funny that White Sox has been around for over like a hundred years. And favorite player Frank Thomas from a couple years ago. That's him. <laughs> we even go back into the the history of it all. But I mean, I, except when you grow up with these players, they just leave their mark on you. So you have mm-hmm. to say favorite player to the one you grew up with. Yeah, I can't speak too much about like Ed Walsh or anything, but I respect him. <laughs> Mad respects. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned Mark Burley. Um, and one of the things that I know we talked about is you've, you've got a Mark Burley story. Now I of course know Mark Burley as the very quick working, um, you know, White Sox pitcher that, you know, through the perfect game, uh, might've come in and closed out the playoffs a little drunk from the bullpen. Um, <laughs> so I absolutely, from what I know of Mark Burley, I, a big fan. Um, so I'm excited to hear what you've, you've got to, uh, share your experience about him. Oh man. Um, yeah. So I was, I was at Burley's perfect game. So he really, really, yeah, he has a special place in my heart. I have the, uh, the scorecard is framed right behind me. Actually. Um, <laughs> I was all of 13 years old, like keeping score, like a total nerd, but that's why you do it. Right. Cause, uh, you never know when something like that's going to happen. And Burley was, all, you know, he was kind of the ethos of those, um, those white Sox teams of the two thousands, early 2010s because he was he was how I was introduced to the concept of a pitcher being a number one but not an ace which was kind of where the White Sox fell from like 2000 2009 the real formative years of my fandom there were a lot of second place (laughs) finishes we had the great world series year of course but uh lots of second place finishes to to the twins and uh Cleveland teams of of those years and so Burley was always there being at the top of the rotation for a good competitive team like day in day out he threw I mean he had 10 wins and 200 innings pitching a season for almost 15 straight years so he really was the definition of stability and you know, baseball is a game one of the things and I, I can't remember if it was you who picked this Noah and the, the best things about baseball draft or something else but we talk about how great it is that baseball's around for 162 games it's all six months of the summer and this guy was pitching every fifth day for like my entire childhood all of my formative baseball watching years and for i can only assume thousands and thousands and thousands of others so uh he's he is particularly beloved and the fact that he was the one to throw that unlikely perfect game uh on top of that no hitter uh, a couple years earlier uh and the fact that i was uh, there for it and as were a lot of my family members, like completely unrelated, <laughs> like really, really weird. It's a, it's a special, he's a special player and he does like, so, so like I said, he has a pretty special uh, place in the Pantheon here. Actually, where is it? I've got his bobblehead back here somewhere <laughs> in the collection. How, uh, oh, there it is. <laughs> how were you feeling for the, uh, the game saving catch? Do you remember? Oh God, oh, I'll goodness. never forget that. Um, 
So the first thing I'll, I would remember is that the two, I was sitting with my parents and a cousin down in the lower tank of what was then U.S. Cellular Field. May it always be U.S. Cellular Field in my heart. Um, second row down the third baseline, same place that we got um, that I had this foul ball at. It was some uh, like tickets that my dad had gotten through work. I think I don't know, but we we're um. So, but there were these two women sitting in front of us who were probably mid twenties. I would have to guess. Uh, I was thirteen at this time, so you know, gauging not really so great there. <laughs> but they had a big sign that was all about Dwayne Wise. They were Dwayne Wise fans, and Dwayne yeah. Wise didn't even start the game. He was, you know, I, I don't know how how this happened. Like I still don't know how this happened. It was, but it, it's so so eerie because then, of course, he comes in to the game in the ninth inning as a defensive substitute and uh, makes, <laughs> makes that, in, <laughs> that incredible catch. And I remember so very distinctly, you know, the second the ball hit the bat and you see, we watch a lot of foul, like, oh, we see the bat, ball hit the bat a lot. We see a lot of balls in play and a lot of fly balls and a lot of home runs. We generally know it when you see it, right? Like you have a pretty good intuition when a ball leaves yeah. the bat, you know, if it has a chance or not. And that ball left the bat and you could just feel the entire park just go like, Oh, like, no. <laughs> like when I, I felt like, you know, a dog with ears drooping down, like, Oh no, 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 no. Uh, and, and then of course he, he, he made that incredible catch, which, uh, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it, it, Dwayne wise turned out to be a really, really cool human being too, as I later found out, which makes oh, that nice. whole, that whole thing a lot, a lot sweeter uh, in retrospect, I think. That's really phenomenal. You got to see a perfect game with, you know, the guy that embodied the White Sox and Burley. And it seems whenever we have a guest on now, they have a perfect game story. So this is, yeah. this is nice. <laughs> oh, who, who was I, who was I preceded by here? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm unfamiliar with many of my, um, my podcast <laughs> network, uh, productions here. Well, so uh, short on time. <laughs> I was, was going to ask you if you had gotten those tickets from, uh, from Chad Young, because he told a story where he actually gave away tickets to a perfect game twice in the same season, um, for Phil Humber and Felix Hernandez <laughs> on the Mariners. So yeah, it's, it's really weird. I don't really have, I don't have a perfect game story. Um, do you, Brandon? Uh, the only one I have is that I listened to Randy Johnson's perfect game on the radio from first pitch to ending. Uh, Cause that was my form of the years, 2003, 2004. And then all of a sudden you listen to every Randy Johnson game. Cause even then I knew I should not take this for granted. Lo and behold in Atlanta, perfect game. Love it. But yeah, nothing in person at all. No, but there's still so you just you always it's like it's like the Kennedy assassination. You just always there's only twenty. <laughs> there's not twenty Kennedy assassinations, but you know you Kennedy. get the point. <laughs> you, you just you know yeah. you are. You remember where you were. <laughs> yeah. So you can go up to anyone and you're like, so where were you when Phil Humber threw a perfect game? <laughs> where were you for the sixteenth Kennedy assassination? All right, you know that's that might be cheating. That might be cheating, but uh, <laughs> yeah, and, that's uh, funny. Peripherals, no, that's uh, that's 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 hilarious. Um. Yeah, ah, twice yeah. in one year. Oh man, yeah. brutal! I can't even imagine doing it one time. Like that would break me. I, I, deep. I bet he's probably the only person that's ever done that. That's pretty in the fair. Same season, yeah, yeah. Anywho, <laughs> unless yeah. Anyway, um, so I know. So that was that was great. I hope to you know see a perfect game myself someday, and that, that was really cool. Getting like your side of the experience, uh, getting to see Burley of all people throw his perfect mm-hmm. game. That's a really cool, really cool achievement. 
Um, so along with that, I know you brought a trivia question for us, and you said you're a big uh, trivia guy. What's what's like your trivia experience? Oh, man. Uh, I actually, about a year ago now, at the outset of the pandemic, uh, I do work for a an application, a game application that is related to sports, and that's the I, I can only explain that much right here uh but when Ooh. it's dependent on oh god you just i just can't explain it i'm just terrible with words i don't know how to impart <laughs> to people like what i do how i make money it doesn't make any sense at all uh, yeah <laughs> which is fine uh they pay me to watch sports games which is fine which is great but then when sports shut down last year it was not great uh there were no live games to do and so i was like okay um am i gonna be out of a job uh no i was not out of a job we pivoted to trivia and i spent the next oh, hey. three four months writing like you know, 30, 40 trivia questions every night for every other night for, uh, wow. So, so you're saying this isn't going to be easy. I don't know. I had to call, I called up a buddy right before I came on here to ask if like, this was a a common knowledge. Cause I had one. I was like, is this, I don't know if it's too easy or not. I don't, this might be common knowledge. Um, I'm excited. So there are, uh, three players in major league baseball history. Three, one, two, three. I thought that was more than three. Okay. <laughs> um, who, next part of the sentence, have <laughs> recorded seasons of 20 wins and 40 saves? Not in the same season, to be clear. Oh. But individually, they have a 20-win season and a 40-save season. Um, who are the three? Glavin? I'm going to do... I was going to go with... Um, oh. Maybe like Hoyt Wilhelm. He, I think he had That's, had a yeah. wicked season like that. Um, I don't believe he's there, up guess. there. No, you were adjacent. Eckersley, you were adjacent. Second, though, there's one. Smoltz. Eckersley, Smoltz, and Smoltz. For sure. Those Smoltz, are the two. That's what I meant to say, yeah. Yep. Those are the two big ones. And there's one more that people never get. Up. But he's okay. Yeah. Give it. Give us a time frame. Give us a time frame. Um, like within our, within our lifetime, like within the past twenty years. Within our ooh. I like I said, within a lifetime. 21st century. 20, so that makes me happy. <laughs> 21st century. 20 wins, 20 saves. 40 saves. It's going to be someone who who started off a, a starter and you know got old and got moved to the bullpen, but David Price hasn't been throwing relief uh, that long. So 20 years. Mariano never got to 20 wins. No. Let's see. Yeah, so it, I'm thinking there was somebody who started hot in the bullpen and transferred to the rotation. Uh, like they they came in and they have a spot from the rotation, so they put them in the bullpen. Okay, I will I will say I just went to to look up the years to not throw you. the year the years in question were close. They were both twenty first century, but very early twenty first century. So, okay, um, give us a team like Billy Wagner. No, same era. Um, okay, East Division. Ah. Uh. Now I'm racking through all the pitchers in the East because, uh, you know, I don't pay attention to the East on the West Coast. <laughs> I, I'll be very right. impressed if either of y'all, if either of y'all gets this. All yeah, right. I'm, all right. I'm sure. I, I was feeling good about Billy Wagner, but now I'm not. Derek Lowe. Derek really? Lowe. Wow, that's a throwback. Yeah, that's a name. He was a closer for that's his really first few years there. You were onto something there, Brandon. He uh came up out of the pen and was, you know, the Red Sox closer for a couple years before yeah, transitioning right. to the rotation. Derek Lowe. All right. I got that's that good, question. Good trivia. Yeah. I got that trivia question from a guy working a lunch counter at this place down the street from my high school when I was like a freshman. He said he, he gave me free chicken tenders wow. so I could answer the question. But oh, hey, I, nice. I was not able to <laughs> answer the question. 
That's pretty good, though. Because, yeah, I remember watching Derek Lowe uh, when he was on the Dodgers years later. And oh, he was yeah, a pretty right. reliable guy for, for a time there. See, that's, that's like the best kind of trivia question, too, because, you know, there's a couple answers that are a little easier to get. But then you learn something mm-hmm. about, you know, someone you definitely haven't thought of in years. I haven't thought of Derek Lowe in forever, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get a dummy like good. me who gets his pitchers, it's Braves pitchers mixed up. Glavin, Smoltz, they're all kind of the same. All right, and now moving on, uh, we're going to go into the name game, a segment that we're bringing back uh, after a couple weeks break. Um, So for those of you that don't know, and for Zach as well, uh, the name game is when we pick out one of the uh, more wild baseball nicknames or names from uh, the history of the sport, uh, because along with those usually comes a wacky story behind it. So that's kind of one of my favorite corners of baseball culture, Uh, and so we've made a, a, a game out of it. So I have a name here uh, that I'm going to lay on you both in a second, and then I'm going to put you on the hot seat to speculate how this ball player uh, acquired their nickname or how they got it uh, with, with very limited information to go off of. All right. Sound good. All right. I'm going to make, I'm going to make Brandon go first Let's do it. Uh, to give you a little bit of time to think. But we're going to be talking about Boots Poffenberger. Uh, Boots was a 20th century pitcher for the Tigers and the Dodgers towards the end of the 1930s. <laughs> so, Brandon, how did Boots get his nickname? Uh, well, to me, the easy answer is he was a big fan of the new beautiful game in England soccer, football, and they call him Boots. And so he liked his boots a lot and always made sure they wear nice cleats and boots. So they called him Boots. That's got to be wrong. But hey. Okay. No, I like it. I like it. Um, you said this is the 1930s? Yeah, this is towards the end of the okay. 1930s. So I don't know what like the minimum salary was like back then or what the whole deal was, but it's the Depression and it's not like things aren't super great. I imagine old Bootsy just has one, maybe just has one <laughs> pair of shoes. He would wear the same boots like to and from the ballpark and then onto the field, maybe even sleep with them. I imagine that would probably be problematic for uh, whoever his roommate was at the time. Uh, but, you know, he maybe just had a single pair of boots that he really, really wore the Leap. out of. Um on the field, off the field, who knows? I, that's that's my love Zach. Sorry, you called him Bootsy. That makes me happy. Bootsy. Bootsy. Yeah, Bootsy. <laughs> I feel like that's a that's a pretty a pretty grounded take and I, I like it. Um although I will say a bit of a hot take calling the uh the Great Depression not a great time. Um <laughs> But I like I like both of those both of those options uh, because they are they go in different directions here. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I actually for whatever reason there's so many weird tall tales surrounding this guy that we're going to get into in a second. But I couldn't find anything that actually explained why people called him Boots. Oh. Uh, the furthest the closest thing I could actually find um, was when he originally debuted with the Tigers in 1934. Uh, he basically first day in the clubhouse just proclaimed everybody just like you know what call me boots i'll be on time for meals i'm here to stay and then he says this, he's like i'm just a young punk from a small town and i don't know what the hell it's all about but boy i can blow that apple in there what does that and mean it's, <laughs> i guess you know he can throw hard so he can oh. blow that apple in there and when he when i get smartened up a bit i'll give those batters plenty to worry about so that's that's you know he just People called him Boots. Was he from All right. like Michigan? Was he from the Upper Midwest? Is that how he wound up with the Tigers? He was actually actually born in Maryland. Okay. 
So I thought there might be know, some weird yeah. regionalisms there. I don't know. <laughs> the guy knew what who he was and what he wanted and what he was there to do. I kind of respect it. Yeah. And his full name is actually I don't know if it makes his nickname even better, but his full name is Cletus Elwood uh, Poffenberger, which is so it's it's iconic. Can't I can't imagine it. why I didn't want to and, go Cletus, but Well Yeah, yeah. No idea. See now I'm on my my guess of Cletus cleats, shoes, boots. It makes sense now in my head. Oh. Oh. Okay, maybe you're onto something. <laughs> kind of. I, I can yeah, see. I'm gonna it. give myself a victory oh. there. I need one today. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Okay. <laughs> if you need one. Um, so basically, so like I said, this guy is kind of something of, he's equal parts myth and legend. He's something of baseball's Huckleberry Finn or Forrest Gump character, where kind of every story about him is just this unbelievable tall tale. Uh, so he, like I said before, he was a 20th century pitcher for the Tigers and the Dodgers end of the 1930s, had a very brief career, but his just enough legends to last a lifetime. Um, so he was known because he, he could indeed blow that apple in there, as he I said, using that all the time now. Oh God, please don't. <laughs> and so, and, and so he was kind of the prototype of, you know, the pitcher with the million dollar arm and the 10 cent head kind of, you know, he was full of talent, didn't always, you know, stop to use it to get the most out of it, essentially. Very free spirited guy, this boots. Uh, and he was really more concerned, uh, really just more worried about where he's going to get his next drink than where he's going to make his next start. And he really had this tendency to blow off pitching and going to work to just kind of chase, adv- chase his vices. He'd go fishing, he'd go hunting, uh, pretty much anything but actually be on a baseball I, I field when that. it was his day yeah, to Yeah, I respect that. <laughs> Yeah, and you can kind of understand he how he gets it because you know he was born in Williamsport in uh, you know Maryland in 1915. Uh, his mom was 19 years old, and his dad left when he was four. So he pretty much had to raise himself hunting and fishing. Um, he was pretty athletic as a result, and that's you know how a lot of ball players got into shape as they were working and they had you know physical jobs and physical upbringings. And so he started playing outfield for his local team. Uh, so from there, he signed a pro contract with the Tigers when he was 19 uh, in 1934. And he actually started pitching during his first season of affiliate ball uh, after he actually won both games of a doubleheader uh, because pitch counts were, you know, non- nonsense back then, <laughs> I guess. Um, and around this time, he started to get a little bit of fame and he became known as a bit of an eccentric and a bit of a playboy, right? So... Now it's 1937. He gets called up to Detroit after he starts the pre starts the season. He's nine and two on the mound, and that's when he has his big moment. His his coming out party, you know, announcing his presence to you know a Hall of Fame clubhouse with guys like Charlie Geringer and Hank Greenberg. And this was also at a time where veterans really hated rookies, mm-hmm. just completely. Like it's a very recent thing for rookies to not get mercilessly hazed in their first season in the dugout. And back then, these were really like very hardcore baseball and, guys. So for this kid to just come in, and you, you know, that was pretty. Yeah, and you're saying he announced his presence. Like, is everything he did? Did he walk in the clubhouse and say, "Now listen here, I'm the big buck in this clubhouse"? Like, what? What did? Yeah, he, like, do we know what he did? Get around. He just walked in and, and very loudly introduced himself. He, and He just and shot the took over the, the room and there it was. He was bold, if nothing else, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it he did start to turn people around when he actually, you know, 
in his first big league start, he took on Lefty Grove, mm-hmm. the Hall of Famer, and and won. So if that's going to win over the players of a of a clubhouse, you know, beating a Hall of Famer on your first day, it's a great place yeah. to start. So clearly he had the stuff, right? And and so the media really flocked to him because not only was he a great pitcher in the sense that he was really talented, but he was also just, he was Boots Poffenberger. He was <laughs> had this really weird, colorful nature and he dominated the headlines during his career. Um, they did a 1970 retrospective on him, uh, the D- Detroit Free Press, and they found that uh, he had 52 newspaper clippings in you know the nine months he spent in Detroit. So that's about like one and a half articles a week on boots just for non-baseball related stuff so i think you know and we'll, we'll get into some of these headlines in a second here because it's it's outrageous uh and while he was frequently in the news though you know he was basically just a big kid and you know his managers his teammates they never really could really stay angry at him because he was just this had this very boyish demeanor that uh, kind of just insulated him against any long-term anger. And he only played for those, those few months in Detroit was that was like a second season somewhere or was, or was that it like a bottle so, rocket? He Detroit eventually got, yeah, no, he, like I said, he had a really brief career because he eventually outstayed his welcome in, in Detroit missing games. Uh, and so they got tired of him, shipped him to Brooklyn and then and then when Brooklyn wanted to send him down to the minor leagues, he actually just retired on the spot. So he very, very brief career, right? Yeah. Um, so respect, <laughs> right? You know, he had his convictions. So like I said, endless tall tales. So here's some of the best ones that I dug up. So boots, uh, his first on their first road trip to Washington, uh, he, he wanted to stay an extra day back in his hometown to hang out with his friends. Um, you know, despite the tigers being bound for, you know, Philadelphia the next day. So he essentially missed the bus just cause he wanted to spend more time at home. Really? Yeah. He, he wanted to just hang out more with his friends. It was his first big road trip. And when they yelled at him, he basically said, Hey, like I didn't know any better. And so you get, okay, maybe you get your first, you know, maybe he's just a little naive, you get your first slap on the wrist. Um, it wasn't the first time he would blow off pitching to, like I said, go just fishing or drink. Um, but it's kind of wild to me that he can kind of just, he just didn't think that him personally staying an extra day would matter at all to the actual <laughs> team that he's trying to make. Yeah. Cause this is before plane. You can't just go and fly out and meet your team. This is a long bus ride you're taking. Yeah. It makes you think of how recent, relatively speaking of a phenomenon it is for the entire industry to just be this like multi-zillion dollar thing another just <laughs> kind of wild headline from these days is when boots actually he missed a game uh because the night before he'd been out late in a chicago nightclub uh relatable, and he appointed relatable. himself and he actually appointed himself the conductor of the house orchestra like because this was back when nightclubs had orchestras because that was I got to find out which club this was. I'm, I'm like a, I, I'm a Chicago history buff. I kind of, I know some of the stuff. I'm really curious yeah. what the, <laughs> what the story might have been. That's incredible. <laughs> so these are these are just to be clear. When you say like missing game, like these are games that he was supposed to start. Like he was supposed yeah. to be the pitcher, and he just decided to like, you know, yeah. up and up and go somewhere yeah. else. Okay, yeah. word word. <laughs> I see, I he see. was very committed to, to, to his, you know, having fun. <laughs> Yeah, um, he one time he one time allegedly told room service in one of the hotels that he wanted the breakfast of champions sent to his room, which, in his words, consisted of six cold beers and a steak sandwich. 
However, okay, this is why the story comes with an asterisk. Uh, Boots later denies this story, saying that it never happened because anyone who knows me realize would realize that I would either have a case of beer icing in the bathtub or go out to a bar. <laughs> a man knows himself, yeah. <laughs> I wonder how much of that was, you know, the journalists yeah. of those times were often very... Um, lubricant with the flat with the facts lubricant. I mean, it's storytelling you know but Ooh, what a nice word you know, that's I, what I, 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 I had i thought about that for a half second before i said it but i didn't i didn't have time to critically review it before it came out so you know you went I for it you went for it um, <laughs> well it's it's like the wade bog story about how he allegedly drank something like you know 150 beers on a flight it's like how okay how much of this is them just oh i mean I feel like there's stories ad nauseum of like, you know, in the fifties, I have a family story about uh, someone who was bartending at a hotel uh, on the South side of Chicago back in, in the fifties when the Yankees are staying at the hotel and Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford and Billy Martin and the whole gang comes downstairs and nine, they got like, you know, they've got um like a 4 PM doubleheader or something like that. And uh, it's, you know, 11, and they're at the hotel bar and they're all just getting absolutely trashed. And so a guy goes up, he calls up the you know, bookie, he puts a hundred bucks on the White Sox, you know, fairly substantial money because he's like, yeah, you know, Mickey Mantle's getting on his like, you know, fourth gin and tonic in front of my face and he's got, he's got a game in three hours. So then, of course, the Yankees go up and they win 11 to 2 and 12 to 4 and and, and that's that. And that's how they were. And that's how those dudes rolled back then, you know? <laughs> yeah. The all-American boy, Mickey Mantle. Yes. Yeah, especially Mickey Mantle. Yeah, we, we we need a whole episode dedicated to that guy because he was Which, he was something. yeah, and I shouldn't I shouldn't definitely. necessarily disseminate like too many like you know Mickey Mantle yeah. gloriously <laughs> drinking stories because we all know how that kind of ended. So we should def- <laughs> should temper should temper that and acknowledge that a little bit. But you know, yeah. it's it's apocryphal. It's all apocryphal, and that's that's who definitely. these dudes were though. At the end of the mm-hmm. day, to a large extent, yeah. for um, for better or worse. Yeah, about all of them were boots, <laughs> boots Poffenberger, though. <laughs> yeah, one of the great books that goes kind of in depth on this. One of the first books to do that was a Jim Bouton Ball Four. Um, he tells some stories about Mickey Mantle and some how how the players acted behind the scenes, and it gives you a great yeah. feeling of how the game was in the sixties and early seventies. Yeah. So I would suggest oh, checking classic, that out yeah, if anyone's he, interested. Jim Bouton, rest in peace. He was mm-hmm. kind of exiled for the game from that from the game for that, wasn't he? He was. Yeah, he was absolutely blacklisted for a couple of almost decades actually from yeah. baseball uh just because you know you're not supposed to tell these behind the scenes stories when like two years later other people did they came out with more explicit books but you know Bouton was one of the first ones to do it so and he wasn't a superstar at the time either so no one really let him off easy yeah kind of along those lines uh there's a great headline from the 1938 season uh back to boots that reads boots poffenberger decides to be good to be better uh with a quote that says if i can win 10 games staying up at nights what can i do in shape um which is kind of hilarious that he went on record he's like yeah you know like i'm pretty good just just you know trashing my body well imagine if i tried right like can you imagine being his manager mickey cochran and you know in the morning seeing this slide across your desk while you're having your coffee like your own player saying this it's it's hilarious i got what Oof. what do you think his salary was like i'm there's definitely information on this but like so, I'm, so this yeah, is like 30. how so like how much of a superstar is this guy he was you know, a superstar and like how is he in the sense that even a rookie on a major league team today is like a star, 
you know, like in in the regular person, like he's he's yeah. someone that people know. He's a celebrity. He's there, um, like on another in another it, social sphere. Is this like it can't be much? Because even even in like the sixties, for example, uh, people getting on average salaries, I think it was like twelve k, yeah. something like that. It wasn't much. So rookies in the thirties, I'm probably going to imagine. Yeah, this a is hundred. this is when players had to you know have those crazy offseason. I mean, players still do a lot of minor league players do have to have additional jobs in addition to baseball. Uh, but this is when you know oh, yeah. big time star players were also you know farmers and you know right. doing stuff like that. My, my point being, it's like you couldn't. Or, sorry, go ahead. Uh, the the first person to even make fifty k, which in the twenties was still a big deal, yeah, that was Babe Ruth. <laughs> so it took the great Bambino to actually make good money in yeah. baseball. Yeah. My my point having been like, if you can you imagine if someone who's getting paid like you know even a relatively low level player like I don't know, let's say Marwin Gonzalez, who's signs like you know <laughs> a two year eighteen million dollar deal, yeah pretty unremarkable middle of the road player but you just hear him say oh yeah like can you imagine if i actually got in shape you know people would be like what the hell what are you being what are you being paid for oh that would like, not be pretty yeah. although to be fair it sounds like something zach Granky would kind of say like oh man if i stretched out before this last start i would have been <laughs> if good. i tried i could throw a no hitter every time it sounds very yeah yeah right i could probably yeah. hit him if i wanted to um and so kind of like along you know similarly in that vein so when this guy shows up for spring training in 1939 he was overweight and he actually blamed it on the tigers uh, for making him get up too early in the morning and his reasoning was that when he woke up at 8 a.m he was forced to eat breakfast lunch and dinner when normally he would just roll out of bed at one and only eat one meal for the entire day so he reasoned that because he had to get up earlier he had to eat more which was why he was gaining weight which that tracks. Yeah, that right. makes sense. Tracks to me. <laughs> makes sense, right? Um, and then just another one last story about him just driving his managers up the wall. Uh, when he missed his midnight curfew during his time uh, playing with the Dodgers, he claimed he actually got back to the hotel at 11 p.m. Uh, then his manager, Leo DeRocher, said, he's like, now I, I saw you walk in the lobby at 1230. And then Boots shrugged, and he's like, okay, maybe the clock that you looked at said 1230, but the one that I went by said 11. So that's that's oh the one that, that I was following. That's that's something a 19-year-old kid would right? say to their parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that was, like I said, very brief career, played with the Dodgers, uh, declined to go back to the minors, retired on the spot, and after a little bit of you know, military service. He basically bounced around the minor leagues, um, you know, in the following years, never really made it back and retired permanently in 1949, yeah. just due to wear and tear, just a ton of innings on his arm. That's a good long minor league career though, going from the yeah. 30s to 49. 20 yeah. year pro baseball career, right? Yeah. Back. And he spent a few, a few years playing on the military base in Hawaii, which, you know, if you're going to be in the military, mm-hmm. seems like, yeah, right. All places. <laughs> um, one final story before we leave him. Uh, so he, before a minor league game in 1941, he didn't expect to pitch. So he, of course, went to the bar and got hammered. And so when it ended up that he had to start, he gets into an argument with the home plate umpire, who he thought was squeezing him in the strike zone. And then he actually wound back and chucked the the baseball at the umpire. Um, and then he got ejected. So, you know, really just, hmm. just a wild card character. Just uh, one of the, yeah, I would love to see like a, a, just a short film about this dude's antics because he just seems like this, like, you know, 
out there, almost not even real kind of kind of baseball player. Uh, Good old yeah. Pizza. And so with that, we're going to go into our next segment. Uh, Brandon, take it away with the pickle jar. What do we got today? So the pickle jar, uh, of course, is our segment where we talk about baseball terminology, lexicon, jargon. You know, we've had 170 plus years of baseball things to talk about. So we've come up with crazy terms. Uh, So, of course, we will call our good friends and ask, what does this weird baseball term mean? And they, you know, explain what they think it means. So, Zach, we're going to ask you first. Uh, The term this week is, should be easy for us, Mm -hmm. short porch. So what is a short porch? Oh, a short porch is typically an outfield corner uh, upper deck where it's kind of an overhang slightly or even like a lower level that kind of, I don't know, is just a shorter than typical right field fence. I don't know how you would, I can, you can, you know, I can picture one. I don't know how great I am in describing it right now, but it's like a shorter than average, you know, (laughs) outfield crowd area in the corners. That's conducive to kind of poking out home runs that probably wouldn't be home runs. A lot of other passes. No, that sounds, that sounds, you know, exactly right. And then of course, if you're following the show, I called my good friend Courtney and I asked Courtney who, you know, knows as much of baseball that I've been telling her based off calling her recently. And I said, Courtney, what is a short porch? And after a very long pause, she goes, um, I'm going to say when somebody throws a ball, but they don't throw it far enough. So it's a short <laughs> porch. I mean, that's, that's I love fair. It. I love it. Yeah, it has to do yeah. with distance at least. I, uh, <laughs> I asked I asked my girlfriend Mia about, you know, what's a short porch? And she had a fairly direct answer as well. And she said that that's where the shortstop stands. So makes sense to me. Perfect. <laughs> don't uh, it reminds me of a uh, pl- playing in high school they had the joke of don't forget to get the uh, shortstop for the second baseman like we need this uh, no, what was it the stool for the shortstop yeah you need a stool for the shortstop so they can stand up and you send a you know fresh from the round looking for a stool for the shortstop yeah. it's kind of funny uh, um but anyway uh sh- the short porch technically like as zach was saying it's a term used to describe a field where it's easier to hit home runs due in part of uh, the field that's shorter the home plate than what's considered normal. So you just poke it out there to the short porch to get the home run. Uh, so I think of short porch, I'll think of like Yankee Stadium, for example. They have the short porch and right. And when you were saying that the upper decks were closer to the field, that's what sprang to my mind. Or like the old polo grounds, for example. Um, they had the stands right on top of each other in left field, the short porch. And as far as the origin goes for this one, um, I wasn't able to find a direct lineage, but the earliest... Uh, thing I could find that mentioned Short Porch uh, came from a newspaper article in 1950 uh, talking about Mel Ott uh, managing the Oakland Acorns because he had a lot of power on his team. So he said, we can get out to the Short Porch. So my definition, okay. my definition and, for a short porch would have just been, uh, oh, yeah. you know, a, a feature of a baseball field for, uh, you know, away fans to complain about when there's a home run because um, i feel like that's usually the context that it's it's used in it's it's the the yankee stadium porch or my personal least favorite mm-hmm. the uh the crawford boxes in houston which are like 10 feet from from home plate oh goodness yeah so my, my, my question to both of you then going back to a trivia what is the shortest porch in major league baseball right now. currently Currently, yes. I'm going to stick with, with uh, Minute Maid, at least for, for left field. 
Uh, what do you what are you thinking there, Zach? Racking What's going through your head? All of them. I think you can say left or right field if you want. Oh man, um, I'm still thinking about the polo grounds. Yeah. <laughs> I know that Wrigley has the longest corners in baseball. Um, oh, that's well, a I long mean, porch. <laughs> are we counting Fenway? Are we counting Pesky's pole over there? <laughs> yeah, I was counting. I was counting Fenway. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the only Fenway, place I've yeah. ever seen an outfielder run in to rob a home run. Was when I saw uh, Mookie <laughs> Betts on the Red Sox run in and, and grab one out from Pesky's pole. That's that's kind of yeah. sick, actually. So that's three hundred two like feet away. Yep, three hundred two feet. That short porch. Wow. And, and pre-renovation, right. Yankee Stadium was like still like two ninety eight or something like that. Down, yeah, down right field. Super yeah, that was a short one. Yeah, well, ain't that something? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of ain't that something, Noah, uh, we have our next segment uh, where we're talking about the Knickerbocker rules of 1845. So just to in here, I have no idea what this is about. Zach, I am incredibly interested because it sounds like it's going to be a great time. Oh, yeah. um, so, Brandon, take it away. So the Knickerbockers, uh, I always kind of assumed that most baseball fans knew of it growing up because one of the first books I remember reading was about the baseball history. And at that first page, it was the first game was played in 1848 between the New York Knickerbockers and the New York Nine. And it was like 28 to 1 or something like that. Uh, so Knickerbockers has always been a name I've known, but turns out it's, it's a famous name. Uh, because the Knickerbockers were like the first official team to get together, not just a group of friends that got together to play ball or what have you. They actually organized. And as they organized, uh, a guy named Alexander Cartwright, if, um, he's the one that organized everything, he wrote down a set of rules. Because again earlier, uh, baseball with a space between the base and the ball, mind you, uh, from every town that played it had different set of rules. Maybe it took eight strikes to uh, strike somebody out. Or the foul territory, like was it 360 degrees or just other crazy types of rules. So this was the first time in the recorded history that we know of, at least, where the actual rules were written down. So so it's kind of like when you go to somebody's house and you're playing, like, I don't know how people have, like, home rules for, yeah, yeah, like, you know, uh, board games or drinking games, perhaps, you know, there's there's always, <laughs> like, a, a few weird home rules. This is, that's, that's interesting. So, okay. Yeah, so like every town had these home rules. And so Alexander Cartwright, who's considered to some as the father of baseball, wrote these 20 rules down. So 20 rules to play the game of baseball. And so to give you an idea, how how many pages do you think uh, the 2020 Major League Baseball rule set is? Like how many pages is that handbook for rules? It's, it's probably on like a used bar napkin. Whatever it's, Joe West says goes. Do you ever see the episode of um, Sherlock with the dude who had the mind palace? Yeah. It's the rules yeah, of Major yeah. League Baseball are that, but it's just Rob Manfred's mind palace <laughs> right there. He, you just, everything, the yeah, answers are all deep inside the eyes of Rob Manfred. And that's, <laughs> and that's why we are where we are today. That's what mm-hmm. That's what happens when they when they send the replay to, to oh, New York. It, it's just a machine plugged into Rob Manfred. It's like the Supreme Court judge of <laughs> Futurama. Yeah. Um, so this Major League Baseball is like 172 pages of rules. It's insane. 
But the Nick Barkers had, tw- had 20 rules and that fit on about two pages. So they were just out there to have some fun. And s- some of these rules kind of weaved in to create, you know, our foundation of sports now, like three strikes, you're out. Um, they gave a lot of respect to the umpires, for example, like you can't argue balls and strikes or so you're going to be ejected from the game. Uh, but then the umpire was also kind of chosen the day of, like the president of the club would choose an umpire that day and say, hey, you're going to do it today. So, okay. Um, they set the parameters for foul territory. And they also said for one of the first times that you cannot hit a runner with a ball and have him be out. And by, by, by that, I mean like a fielder running at a guy with a ball and tossing him at them and getting him out that way. So no beanball on the base bats. See, I, I'm telling you, baseball's just gotten softer and softer <laughs> every year. <laughs> That's wild. Can you imagine getting nailed with... Yeah, back in my day, with, with like a, a Mookie Betts like, throw like right in right. the back. And oh, it, we, we talked brutal. about this a couple of podcasts ago, but the ball that was being used in the early 1800s like that, it wasn't, you know rubber center or anything like that it was made by the players yeah. themselves so the pitcher can actually make a ball full of feathers so the ball would just be dead yeah it would be Juice. dead when he hit it so in that sense if you have a ball of feathers hit the guy sure <laughs> um but knickerbockers put an end to that right then then and there um and then there were some other odd rules that did not continue into baseball uh, so for example they have a rule that if a ball bounces once and is caught that's an out. So it hits the infield, sharp, you know, sharp hit, pick it up. That's an out. Outfielder, don't need to die for that. Just pick it up in the moment. Also out. <laughs> what if they, Which, what, one way to take down offense now, you should modify that and be like, if a fan catches the home run, it's, there's actually, oh my goodness. Oh, sorry. There is a set of rules out there somewhere. I think they're currently in some kind of independent league where if a fan catches a ball on the fly, it's actually an out. And I have forgotten wow. exactly where that's at, but it does exist somewhere well, in this world. It would be crazy, though, if you had like a field where there was a gap. There was like a 30-foot gap between the crowd and the fence, and you had to hit that sweet spot for a home run to actually be a home run. Otherwise, like if it's a catch, it's a, it's an out oh, or, double or something like that. That's yeah, So a ball can bounce. You can catch it. You're out. Um, they also put for the first time, a standard size between the bases and that's 42 paces, but I couldn't find what the pace was in 1849. <laughs> How big was Alexander Cartwright's feet? <laughs> and then finally, this is my favorite rule. That's no longer in use. Um, if a team shows up, but they do not have a full, you know, nine players, they can grab somebody, a gentleman, they call him. They can grab a gentleman from the stands and have him play for the day. I love that idea so, so much. So if somebody just shows up late to the game for whatever reason, maybe it was like uh, Boots McPuffin and he comes in hungover and doesn't show up. You grab a kid from the bleachers and bring them in and just see what happens you see stories like that in other realms of culture too like there's great stories famous legendary stories of keith moon the drummer of the who is you know is too too bonkered off of you know horse tranquilizers or whatever to actually play the show so they just say hey anyone want to play drums and some kid comes up and holds his own with the who for who for two hours or like you know even literally a year ago in hockey where they had the freaking Zamboni driver come into a game and, and, and oh, stay the goalie, yeah. two saves or whatever. That's and right. like, 
get them did he they hang on to i don't even remember if they win i don't think they lost embarrassingly though like we we need very very down to introduce yeah. introduce elements of into, into mm-hmm. this game and uh, go ahead i I, I was just going to say, I would be absolutely terrified if this was like a fan promotion, like one, one random seat at the stadium has to, you know, suit up and, and step it against like Araldis Chapman. Oh goodness, that would yeah. be my nightmare, I think. There's a lottery, a lottery to be the starting left fielder for every game, and they just pull, like, come on oh, down. So, as <laughs> I also, sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I really also love how the, um, the not arguing balls and strikes is goes that all the way that far back how in the very like the very foundations of the game are predicated on saying like look we know this guy isn't perfect behind the plate but we gotta just go with it sometimes or that like that the game falls apart if you don't have that basic level of respect you know because then when you start like you know having if you're allowed to ride the ump every single why don't you just ride him every time you throw they just be yelled at constantly so you know it's a it's so they mentioned balls and strikes in there. However, the phrase I love is this, this this is the 17th rule of Knickerbockers. All disputes and differences relative to the game to be decided by the umpire from which there is no appeal. Ooh, love those strong words. All right. So last thing I'll say about these Knickerbocker rules is there was a monumental event that kind of happened with these rules in mind. Uh, so fast forward, uh, this would be what, about 90 years. And now we're in some of the two famous Negro League teams of all time, the Homestead Grays and the Kansas City Monarchs. They are playing the first night game of all time at Forbes Field. They got the lights up. They kind of checked it out before. They're ready to go. First night game, the crowd's probably a few thousand folks in there and the homestead grace catcher buck ewing breaks his finger he cannot catch um the left fielder at the time was the backup catcher but he actually said no he doesn't want to catch because the lighting was kind of weird so they didn't have a catcher so they actually went into the stands to find somebody and they found this stout like 18 year old kid who was literally eating a hot dog and they brought him down and then fast forward 20 oh, years, so that good. same kid hit over 800 unofficial home runs. And that was Josh Gibson. <laughs> that That's is crazy. the legend as it goes. Uh, more likely, he was picked up two weeks earlier and slowly got in the professional game that way. But that has hung on. So I've, I've read about it multiple places where he showed up to this game, was called down from the stands, and became the legendary Josh Gibson. Oh, they're great. Those stories. Uh-huh. It's great doesn't matter if they're probably not yeah. true, right? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 that movie, um, Rookie oh. of the Year, right? With, oh, of course. With uh, the kid who throws the 100-mile-an-hour pitch from the outfield. Yeah. Henry Henry Rowengardner, yes. Yeah. Oh, of course. No, that's, uh, it's, you know, <laughs> just this whole, our whole conversation here has me think, I've been re-watching um, Chappelle's show recently, and he has these skits where it's entire episodes that are basically just Charlie Murphy telling stories uh-huh. and they have like Chappelle and his whole crew, like reenacting the stories as like skits or whatever. But it's basically just kind of Charlie Murphy <laughs> talking about his life and telling stories and stuff like that. And it's totally embellished. Uh, and you know, most of it's not, some of it's not real. And they're acting out all of these things that are way, way who the heck knows what it actually looked like, but that's the story that persists. Mm-hmm. And like, it's, it's because there's so many of those in baseball and I, I'm I'm really I like this project that you guys have done. This is a lot <laughs> yeah. of fun. Yeah, definitely. And and we really that's the joy is we get to f- really unearth new stuff that we 
I, I had no idea about what the what the knickerbocker rules were. You know, you get to find different little corners of uh, of you know the baseball mm-hmm. universe, um, which is pretty fun. Yeah, so it does look like, unfortunately, we are running up on our time here tonight. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for coming on uh, on our show and talking with us about you know your love for for baseball and your love for the White Sox. It was great having you on. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I could talk about tall tales and everything related to baseball all day. So you got my yeah. number. And um, just along with that, you can catch Zach on his podcast, Shag and Flies. Uh, do you want to just give a quick rundown of what what that's all about? Oh yeah, I think you know we had actually we'd be we'd be pretty well primed for a crossover <laughs> episode someday. I feel like we've got a we've got a pretty similar similar ish vibe going. We just find people from all over the baseball writing community to like talk about we talk about baseball, but mostly not. We talk oh. about life and uh just other interesting things about the interesting people on on the baseball internet. We talked for literally like four hours with um with Mikey Ahedo wow. a couple weeks ago. We had a three hour talk with Janice Scurio. We had Chris Towers. We have Sungmin Kim coming on next week. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh so it's like no, it, yeah, it's um, come check it out uh, <laughs> or not. Uh, but it's if you like if you like short hops and tall tales, then I think you'll probably like Shaggy. <laughs> so it, it was it's the like Vice your your back playing baseball, Shaggy flies in the outfield when you're just talking to people. That's yeah, that's idea. a really good name. Mm-hmm. I like that tie-in. We're in we're in the bleachers. We're we're just hanging out, you know. Or even if you're if you are a baseball player or were a baseball player, you can imagine like uh, pitchers during batting practice hanging mm-hmm. out in the outfield just. Shagging flies, shooting, shooting the breeze. Nothing, you know, nothing to talk about. <laughs> yeah. They're warm enough. They ain't got nothing to do. It's yeah. Talk about wherever. Talk about whatever, whenever. With nice. definitely. And you can also find Shagging Flies on Twitter at Shagging Flies PL. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Short Hops PL. I don't know why I forgot my own, our own. I don't know. Um, you can you can find Brandon on Twitter. This is live. We're doing it between between uh, technical. Look, if there's one thing if there's one thing I've learned over the past two months of editing like three hour long episodes yeah. is that bloopers are endearing. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. All right, don't forget you can follow Shaggin Flies on Twitter at Shaggin Flies PL. Uh, you can also check us out on Twitter at Short Hops PL. Uh, don't forget you can find Brayden at BD Riddle, myself at Noah A. Scott 6, and Zach at Pine Tar Keyboard. If I, yes? Okay. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, don't forget to check us out and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're currently listening to us right now, right? Yeah. Um, so this has been a lot of fun. Zach, thanks again for coming on. Uh, for Brandon Riddle, I'm Noah Scott, and this has been Short Hops and Tall Tales. See you next time. Mm-hmm.